right, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to actually go back to verses 12 and 13. I know they were part of last week's study, but they need to be a part of this week's study because we didn't have time to really dive into some depth that was there. Uh, And we're going to go all the way from chapter 12, verse 12, to the end of the chapter, Lord willing, in the time that we have here for this study. So let me read the whole section to you, and then we're going to break it down into four sections, all right? Uh, Starting in verse 12 of chapter 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could, not, he could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who, who warned them on earth, how much, le- will we, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, if you've been a part of the study, you know this is a much longer segment than we normally cover. Typically, we only get a few verses. Uh, but tonight, as like I say, as I did the preparation for this study, I, I, we have to understand that you're going to see in a little bit how this all ties together. The Hebrew author here is drawing his letter to the, these people to a close. Keep in mind who he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism because of the suffering they're experiencing because of their faith. They, some of them have lost their property. Some have, uh, have been put in prison. Uh, the Hebrew writer has been challenging them from the beginning to say, hey, look, what you have in Jesus is greater than Moses and greater than the law and greater than the Old Testament covenant. And, and all the way through, he's been using many different things to encourage them to keep looking forward in faith. We, as you know, a few weeks ago, looked at the Hall of Fame of Faith, men and women of faith who, who lived by faith, and some were blessed in this life, and some suffered in this life, but they all lived by faith. He then, as you know, last week, chastised them a little bit and said, you haven't even yet resisted to the shedding of your blood. In other words, get, stay back in, get back in there and keep going, even though it's rough. And then we talked about how God disciplines His children as a loving Father, and He puts them through shaping and molding. And the Hebrew writer has been using uh, 
athletic terminology a lot, running the race with perseverance and so on. And he goes back here in verses 12 and 13, kind of where we left off last week, and I just really wanted to take some more time here. And he continues this athletic type of a theme when he says, Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Now the translation of this in, in, from Greek into English is kind of tricky. So the, a way to help you understand it is the writer is simply saying wrap up or bandage your weak knees and run on level and smooth ground. In other words, um, if you've ever tried to exercise and work out and you haven't done it in a while... You start to hurt, don't you? Your knees might be swell a little bit, or your joints might get sore, and you're tempted to say, it ain't worth it. But you know that if you want to receive the purpose of the discipline and the training, and you want to get stronger, you put a nice bandage on. You, you wrap yourself, your knees up, and you tape them up, and you keep going. And you also, at the same time, maybe look a little bit more carefully where you run. And you'll look for the smoother path, if you will. And this is what the Hebrew writer is saying. He's saying, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. In other words, allow God's discipline to accomplish its purpose. It's been tough, but it will make you stronger. So put the ace bandage on and keep running. Keep going. Don't quit because it's been tough. But interestingly enough, and to be honest with you, I had never really thought of this or seen this before. And as I was studying this passage, I came to realize when he says, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees and make level paths for your feet, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament. And he's actually quoting from some passages that were already written in the same way. And we go, if we go back and look at what the, the Hebrew uh, writer was using as the basis for saying this to him, where do you see what those passages say? Go to Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 35, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Now, the Hebrew author is quoting from verse 3, but I want you to look at the context from what this passage is that he pulls it out of. In Isaiah 35, starting in verse 1, it says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like this crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shoot, shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any any ferocious beast get up on it, they will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Does anybody know what, the, what Isaiah is talking about? What time period Isaiah is referring to here? 
the millennial kingdom when Jesus Himself comes and His splendor is there and the righteous will come back to the earth and Jesus will reign from Jerusalem and people will make their way to Jerusalem and it's going to be wonderful. And in the middle of that, as Isaiah is through the Spirit of God encouraging them, he says in verse 3, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. In other words, it's been hard. It's been tough. Whatever you got to do, wrap your knees and keep going. Keep going. Why? We're almost there. It's coming. It's coming. The time is coming. Folks, I don't know how close it is. I I have friends around the country that call me and they say, Jim, do you feel it like I feel it? And I have to say, yes, I still can't give you a day. But I feel it too. It's getting close. But you also might also be sensing that the enemy's evil is increasing in these days. Is it not? I mean, if you pay attention to what happened today with somebody just going to an IHOP in Nevada and just shooting people. And it wasn't just there. He started shooting people all around in the strip mall where he was at a barbecue place. And he, praise the Lord, only killed a couple, you know, or three or four. But there were many more shots fired than that. And folks, as you keep reading, wickedness is increasing at the same time. And we could easily become tired and say, I just can't get going. And the Hebrew writer says to these people, and God's saying to us, keep going. Wrap your knees up and keep going. Go also to Proverbs chapter 4. You'll see this level path that he talks about is in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 through 27. Proverbs chapter 4, starting in verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet. And take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. Now folks, as we put Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4 together, how the, 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 Isaiah says, strengthen your weak arms and your feeble knees. The Lord is coming. It's going to be awesome. And then in Proverbs 4 where it says, make level paths for your feet. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Uh, Take only ways that are firm. Don't swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. All of a sudden now, what we read, go back to Hebrews chapter 12, makes a ton more sense. Remember what we just read in those two passages and listen to chapter 12, verses 12 and following. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so the lame will be not disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance as right 
writes as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he could not bring about. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Do you see what has what the Hebrew writer is doing here? He quotes from the Old Testament two passages in those verses, and then goes into detail in the next verses that we would just see as separate, but they're actually the specifics of how to make your path straight, how to make your path firm, how to avoid evil. He's just said, strengthen your weak arms and your weak knees, keep going, the, the return of Christ is, is coming, and, it, and it's going to be soon. And then he quotes from Proverbs 4, where we're to be, keep on going, make level paths, avoid evil. And the Hebrew writer starts getting into the specifics of how to avoid evil. That's why he says, try to live at peace with everyone. Now folks, I'm going to tell you, he's just said, run a race that won't trip you up. And I'm going to spend some time now in this section, just dealing with some things that may trip us up in these days that we have left. Because as we've just agreed, evil is increasing and wickedness is on the rampage, so will the evidence of evil and wickedness. And if you go back and you look at some of the lists that the Scripture have, and we're not going to for the second time turn there, where it talks about fornication and adultery and so on, did you also know that in those same lists it says dissension, factions, envy, jealousy, strife, slander? And so what I want to do real quick is I want to take you to a couple places in Romans. Go to Romans chapter 14 and take a look at how the Scripture says that as believers in Jesus Christ, as far as it lies with us, and we're going to see that coming up, we need to live at peace with everybody. Go to Romans 14, start, and we'll look at verse 19. says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. I'm going to say it again. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. I just quoted it to you as I was setting it up, but I want you to see it. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Folks, I'm going to just give you a little heads up. If the Scripture is telling us, and God's telling us in these last days to make sure that we run straight and we keep going, one of the things that's going to trip us up is dissension. And you need to be watching for it and be ready. And what does the Bible say should be our response? As far as it lies with us, as far as it's possible, make every effort to do what? To be at peace with everyone. Now, does that mean everybody's going to be at peace with you? And yeah, yes, we're, we're trying to build up. Yeah, you're trying to build them up. Well, you definitely have to be humble to be able to try to build that person up. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be at peace with you, but you need to make sure that you're not one of the reasons that there's an issue between you and somebody else. I'm not going to go any further than this, but this past week I talked to a Christian brother. And I mentioned another Christian brother's name, and that Christian brother said to me, don't mention that person's name to me. And they both go to the same church. And that one man actually said, don't mention his name to me. I don't want to have anything to do with him. Folks, it's going to trip you up. You know what the Bible says, when you give Satan a foothold, remember? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give Satan a foothold. You give him a foothold, 
He's going to start getting in there. And pretty soon, you're going to become bitter. You're going to become angry. And it doesn't matter what happens to you. It's everybody else's fault. And you're going to get tripped up in these last days. Is wickedness going to increase? Yes. Are there going to be things that are going to typically cause us to react negatively? Yeah. But if you know it's coming... One of the things we as a family, have, especially Becky and I, have learned to recognize is when the enemy tries to put a little bit of dissension in there. And there'll be times, as wonderful as I am to be married to, that Becky and I don't get along. That's right. But there'll be times that Becky and I will both realize when there starts to be some friction, especially on times when I'm about to go preach or times when we're, we're actually heading to do something that the Lord has inspired us to do, we'll go, all right, the enemy is really trying to tear us apart right now. And we have to stop and realize the battle's not against flesh and blood. But it's against the spiritual forces of evil. And so, in these days that are left, try to live at peace with everyone, folks. However God has you play that out, He'll show you. He'll walk you through it. Keep that in mind. Another thing He says is this. Back in Hebrews chapter 12, He says, Be holy. Now, this is a tough one for a lot of people, and I want you to kind of stick with me here. I'm going to paraphrase it for you, and then I'll show you some scriptures that back this up. Live as you are, is what it means when it says, Be holy. Because I'm going to show you, the Bible says you're already holy. Set apart for God's purposes. You're already holy, yet I'm going to show you, the Bible says you're being made holy. How can I be holy and be being made holy? Yes, Allison? Our spirit is fully holy. That's correct. In Christ. Our flesh is yucky and I don't like it. That's right. But our spirit should be allowed to manifest itself even with our flesh. It should have control over the flesh. But that's why even though we are holy because of who you are in Jesus Christ, you're a new creation. The Spirit of Christ Himself is within you. You are holy. But it doesn't always manifest itself because God does not force Himself on us. He allows us to choose whether we're going to let Him live through us or whether or not our flesh is going to be in control. And so the Scripture here says, be holy. Let me, let me take you to uh, go to Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 19 through 22. Paul says, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. In other words, remember, Jesus is living within you. You have to yield yourself, offer your body as a living sacrifice, let Jesus live His life through you, alright? And it will manifest itself in holiness when Jesus is in control. That's why it says in Galatians 5.16, Therefore I say, walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You let Jesus have control, you'll live holy. Then he goes on to say, when, verse 20, When you were slaves to sin, you were freed from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. In other words, you have been set free from sin. It has no power over you. If you sin now, it's because you chose to and you let sin have its way. That's why Paul in Romans 6 says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. 
Before you didn't have control. You were its slave. You could try all you want, but you had no victory. But now because of Christ in you, you can say no to that and you can yield to Christ and you'll have victory. Remember, Jesus was not only 100% God, He also was 100% human. Tempted in every way. Yet He continually, always allowed His Spirit or the God the Father living in Him to manifest Himself in how He lived. He yielded to the Father. And that's why Jesus was sinless. And so He's saying you're already holy, yet you need to be holy. You've got to let the Jesus that's in you manifest Himself. Oh, by the way, uh, that's going to happen on a daily basis, a daily struggle It's going to be a wrestling match you're going to have the rest of your life. You've heard me say, if Jesus who was perfect still struggled against the flesh, remember in the garden, I don't want to go to the cross. His flesh did not want to follow in obedience, yet nevertheless not my will but yours. If Jesus struggled against the flesh to the day He died, you're going to struggle against the flesh to the day you die. Don't think that at a certain point I'll get so holy that I won't have struggle anymore. I used to think that, I used to honestly think that. As a, man, I've been a Christian for a long time. You think at a certain point I'd get to the point where sin would have no control over me. I used to think I'd get there. And then I read the Bible and realized Jesus still struggled with sin. Do I think I'm going to be better than him? But it's going to be a daily basis. So when he says, be holy, what's he saying? Go out and do it in your own strength? No. You need to understand who you are. Again, if you hadn't listened to that message yet at First Merritt Island, go get it. Go download it or stream it. Whatever you need to do, where you take a look at it. Your flesh does not want the kingdom of God and you cannot do the, king, the will of God. You have to let Jesus do it through you. Let me show you one more place. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Actually, let me show you two more places. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 14. It says, because by one sacrifice, He, Jesus, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, because by one sacrifice, He, Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you see it? You're already perfect, yet you're being made holy. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Yet, God's teaching you how to let the Jesus in you live His life through you it's a daily basis of you saying no to your will and your flesh and yes to Jesus who is within you and let Him have control. One more place. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 13 through 16. Chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Peter verses 13, verse 13 and following. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Now for years, I have to be honest with you, I read that as this. God says, I'm holy. Jim, you need to be like me. And I tried. I'll be honest with you. I tried to be holy. Guess how I did? Not well. But the more I studied this, the more I came to realize, and you look at the whole of Scripture, and we've just looked at some of it. He's saying, be holy because I'm holy. And what that means is, I'm holy. I'm the one inside of you. Apart from me, you can do what? So if He's holy and He's inside of me, can I be holy? Yes, I can. But only as I yield to Him. 
in faith and believe that He will give me the victory over sin. And that's a daily thing, throughout the day thing, of resting in Him and trusting in Him. And when the temptation comes, what am I to do? I'm to rely on Him who's within me, greater is He who's in you, 1 John 4, 4, than He who's in the world. That's why when Satan came to tempt Jesus and to test Jesus in the wilderness, what was Jesus' response? The Word of God. It is written. And He rested on what God had said and what God had promised. And He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm trusting the Father's promises. And that's where Satan did what? He fled. See, we always hear the Scripture in James. Resist the devil and he'll flee. You left off the first part of the verse. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. You only resist him because Jesus is there, not because you are able to stand against him. I've tried to stand against him and I can't. Now he goes on back here in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're not going to take a whole lot of time, and actually probably no time on this. Hopefully I don't need to. But he also says avoid sexual immorality. Now I'm just, I'm just hoping you understand what the Scripture has to say there. And we're not going to take the time to go into that because of where we need to go. But the Bible says avoid it. Now why would the Hebrew writer writing to Christians say avoid sexual immorality? He needs to. Why? Because it is an issue. It's going to be there. It's going to be a temptation. Folks, let me just tell you, it's out there. One of the biggest problems right now in Christendom, and it's sad, is a lot of men, and I'm talking most men in our churches today, are struggling with a secret pornography problem. Can't say it? Pornography problem because of the internet. See, years ago, before the internet, if you wanted to go look at something you weren't supposed to look at, you had to go to a store and hope no one saw you. Nowadays, you can do it and nobody will know you're sitting in your house. And unfortunately, because the flesh is weak, even though the Spirit's willing, there are many, please don't hear me wrong, there are Christians who are losing the battle. Many. And I'm saying to you, I say to Christians, women as well, I can tell you story upon story about women who because of the internet and the guy on the chat room who sounds so much better than her husband because he's so nice and he listens to me and he cares. And I can tell you story upon story, having been a pastor for over 20 years, of women in the church who have left their families because of some guy they met on the internet in a chat room. Or they're reading the horror Harlequin romance novels and this guy just, he, he meets my need. Avoid sexual immorality. Remember, this is all tied back to verses 12 and 13. Wrap your knees. Strengthen your feeble arms and make level paths. We're this close to the finish. Don't trip up. Finish strong. Finish strong. Vince Abner preaches a wonderful sermon. If you ever want to go find it somewhere, it's called Getting Home Before Dark. When he was a young preacher boy, he used to get on a train. His dad put him on a train to go preach somewhere. And his dad always told him, be home before dark. And then he turned that around into how we need to finish in the Christian life. Because you know what? You could live your whole life for Christ and make a wonderful testimony. But if you trip up at the, at the end. Just take Billy Graham, for example. What if we found out that Billy Graham had a moral failure? What would he be remind, remembered for? All the years of faithfulness or that one last trip up? Get home before dark, folks. Make level paths for your feet. Alright. 
that now the author in this section here uses Esau as an example for a warning. I need to have you go with me real quickly to Genesis 25. There's something here in Esau's story that will help you understand what he's saying to them and how it applies to us. Uh, Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34. Most of us probably know this story, but if not, I want you to see it real quick. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. Esau was born first, so he got the uh, birthright. Esau was a a man who hunted and fished. Nothing wrong with that. But look at verse 29 of chapter 25. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. Might not have been a good hunter and fisherman, but but he said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he's also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. Look what it says. So Esau despised his birthright. Folks, Esau considered temporary comfort more important than his birthright. Was he going to die? Probably not. Probably not right then. He probably felt like, you know, you ever raised teenagers? I'm starving! Yeah, four-year-olds even. Well, I'm going to ask you an honest question. I'm not trying to be crude, but I, I just want to help you get the picture of it. What did Esau do with that stew probably about two hours later? Probably left it in the woods somewhere, didn't he? Now, I want you to just think about this. But he thought that he needed the temporary comfort that he actually said, that's more important than my birthright. These Hebrew Christians who were considering rejecting Christ. Think about what they were saying. They weren't saying, we'll be quiet Christians and pretend to be Jews. They were saying, no, we're going to say no to Jesus, go back to the law, back to Judaism, back to what was a picture of what was to come, rejecting Christ. Remember Hebrews chapter 6. It's important for us to remember what we learned in Hebrews 6. How after you've already once tasted the heavenly gift, after having rejected it, there's no salvation. Remember, what we learned from that study was this. If someone, this isn't a picture of losing salvation. This is for someone who has understood the truth. The Spirit of God has opened their eyes to the one and only way to be saved. They know that's the only way. And if they say, I reject that, the Bible says God shuts the door. They cannot be saved. And Esau knew what his blessing was, his birthright was, and he despised it because of temporary desire for comfort. And then later on, when he sought the blessing with tears... He couldn't get it. And the Hebrew writer is warning again those in this group that he's writing to who might not truly really be saved. That's why he keeps speaking to them as if they are saved. And other times it looks like maybe they're not. He's saying to them, right now you guys are experiencing some temporary discomfort in this life. be honest with you, you haven't even shed blood yet, but you've had it rough. And you're thinking of despising your birthright as a child of God. 
for temporary comfort, don't be like Esau. Because if you remember, once Esau made that decision, it was too late and he couldn't come back. And this is what he's saying here. It's a continual warning. Let's jump over to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. He says, You haven't come to a mountain that can be touched and is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they couldn't bear what was commanded. And what was commanded, by the way, was even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What the Hebrew writer does now is, continuing in that theme, he says, look, for those of you still thinking about going back, do you remember what the situation was when the Old Covenant was given and God gave the Ten Commandments? That wasn't a real cheerful situation. wasn't a real happy day. Because if you remember, they were, when God came down and visited them and brought the Ten Commandments, there was, well, I wrote it down here, darkness, gloom, storm, great fear, tremendous or severe penalties for disobedience. But you haven't come to that type of a, an offer. You've come now through faith in Jesus Christ to what? The heavenly Jerusalem, the Mount Zion. I wrote it down. I love how he breaks it down here. You've come to a welcoming. You've come to angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the church. People like us already made perfect, if you will. Then it says spirits of men made righteous. I think this is a picture of the Old Testament saints who are there in heaven as well. And then he says, to God Himself, whom we're at peace with. Remember, because of Jesus Christ, we're at peace with God. God, we don't have to worry about tiptoeing. We've read in this, this book, that in this, this book of Hebrews, that we can go boldly into His presence, into His throne. Those of you thinking about going back, do you, have you forgotten what the old covenant setup was? Darkness, fear, gloom. Hope I don't mess up because I've got to be perfect or else God's going to bring judgment. That, remember, the old law was to do what? To show us we couldn't keep His law. Now we understand that it was a picture and pointing to what Jesus was going to do for us. And the Hebrew writer is saying, if you want to still consider going back, compare the two people, the ways that you can approach God. Wouldn't you rather come to this one approach God in this way? And I love how he says, and you're also coming to Jesus who is our mediator, whose blood speaks better than Abel's blood. Now some of you are saying, what does that mean? Well, let me take you back to Genesis chapter 4. Now stick with me, because some of you are all sitting here going, okay, this is all well and good, but Jim, there's nobody in this room that's thinking about going back to Judaism. Stick with me. Don't think that this isn't to speak to us. Don't tune out. In Genesis chapter 4, look at verse 10. This is after Abel, uh, sorry, Abel was get, Cain killed his brother Abel. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's blood cried out for what? Vengeance, justice. 
What does the blood of Jesus say? Forgiveness. Do you see how Jesus' blood speaks a better thing than that of Abel's? Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It's really clear right here. I'm going to read it to you. If you want to turn there, you can, but I might beat you to it and you'll get frustrated, so I'm just telling you now. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. Just listen. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Abel's blood cries out vengeance, retribution, Justice, Jesus' blood offers forgiveness, reconciliation. And, and how does that relate to the saints that are, how much longer? And... Well, and that's one of the things, that's one of the pictures, by the way, of the, the difference between the church and the tribulation saints. That's one of the, we, the, if we couldn't hear what Suzanne just said, she said, how does that tie into Revelation where the, 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 uh, um, the souls under the altar Cry out, how long do you avenge our blood? That's one of the places I actually use to show people one of the many evidences, I believe, of a pre-tribulational rapture because the church response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Stephen was stoned, Jesus said the same thing. But now, during the tribulation, remember, we've gone back to that last seven-year period. The church age is over. God is working in different dispensation in that last... And they're crying out like they were in the Old Testament. How long do you avenge our blood? Further evidence of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. You see a different attitude there. So remember, they go back to the law. Remember, the Jews are going to go back to the law, rebuild the temple and the sacrifices and all that. Of course, the Antichrist is going to put an end to it. So that's how that's a difference. This is the, is the church age we're talking about here. Yes, you want to say something? Or? Oh, you have a fly. Okay. I thought you were trying to get my attention out of my peripheral. <laughs> You're so beautiful. I try not to stare at you too much. So I just, but I saw something in my corner of my eye there. So, but do you see what the Hebrew writer's doing here? He's comparing the old covenant and the new covenant, folks. Which one would you like to go be a part of? The joyful assembly of angels and righteous men made perfect, and the church and Jesus and God, who's we're at peace with, or do you want to go back to? You better do it all perfectly, or else. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? But listen, now listen to me. And I've, I've set this up for a reason. I wrote down here in my notes, we would never say that we reject salvation through Christ and desire to return to the Old Covenant in Judaism. But we do the same thing when we try to earn God's acceptance and approval instead of receive it by faith. I'm going to say it again. We do the same thing, not in the full extent where we reject Christ and say, I'm, not gonna, I'm going to say no to salvation. But when we as Christians fall into that mindset of thinking that we have to do things in order to, to gain His acceptance and His approval. You know full well when you sin, you feel guilty, and what do you do? You then say what? Oh, I'll, I'll make it up to you. You want to, you think about what you have to do, a couple of good things, so you feel better that He'll be happy with you again. And that's the danger. Go with me real quick to Luke chapter 15. Now, this is the story of the prodigal son, but we're going to look at the older brother just to look at what's going on there. Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32. It says, Meanwhile, the older son 
was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants, and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is in back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I don't know if you see this or not, but the older son thought that how he got his father's acceptance was through obedience. Through doing, I never disobeyed an order. I slaved for you. I've been busting my fanny and it's not paying off. And the father says, you don't get it. I'm always with you. Everything I have is yours. You just had to receive it by faith. You don't earn it. And so I want to challenge you. You're not going back to Judaism. Most of us didn't come out of Judaism. But when we think we have to do certain things in order to get back in His good graces, you're still thinking you have to earn it. And you don't earn it. It's received by faith. You thank Him for it. And when we sin, as you've heard me say before, our confession is agreeing with God when He pursues us in love and says, my son, my daughter, you need me to wash your feet. And we say, you're right, thank you. We don't. Confession is not me saying, oh God, I sinned again, would you please forgive me? Confession is God washing our feet before we even ask and us saying, you're right, I need it. And like Peter, responding to Him and saying, wash my feet. And so folks, stop trying to earn His approval. Stop trying to earn His approval and just receive that you have it. And when that starts to sink in, you really start to enjoy the peace and the joy we have of being His children. Now, I'm going to go down a road, though, and I think we have time to do it. Yeah, I do have time to do this. I want to go down a road, though, that I think we need to go to kind of take this to the next level. All right, I've just said you've got to stop trying to earn His approval. But I want to take you to a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which has caused some people some problems. And I want to take some time to kind of teach on that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verses 9 and 10. I want you to turn there and see it. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10. It says, So we make it our goal to please Him, meaning God, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is a passage of Scripture that's given me problem because as God has been teaching me to receive His grace and to live by faith and to accept my position and stop trying to earn it and just receive it, I have run into this passage though where it says we make it our goal to please Him though. Yet the Scripture says that He's already satisfied. Actually, it says that in Isaiah 53. If you go back and you look at Isaiah 53, it says that God saw the suffering of His soul and was what? Was satisfied. It is finished. Fully paid for. To Tetelestai in the Greek means paid in full. So my question was, how do we please God who's already satisfied? I mean, would you not agree the Scripture says that because of what Jesus has done, God is fully satisfied and we are righteous because of Him and not anything of ourselves? Salvation is a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. But we make it our goal to please Him. How do you please a God who's already satisfied? Yes, ma'am. Just to 
You're real close. And, and, and you're right, but let's change the word. She said it's by surrendering to Him. It's by faith. Go back in the verses right before this. Look at verses, and Becky's right too, by believing Him. It's by faith. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. Therefore, we are, he just talked about, I've got to go to verse 5. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by what? Faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether at home in the body or away from it, because we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due Him for the things done while in the body, as after salvation, whether good or bad. And that word bad, by the way, is a horrible translation. A better translation is worthless. You're not going to be judged for the bad things you do, because you're already clean because of the word He's spoken to you. But there are things that we're going to be rewarded for, after salvation, and there are going to be other things that we're not going to be rewarded for because they're worthless. So don't see it as good and bad. Oh, he's going to get me for the bad things. No, you're going to find out what worthless things. Wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble. Exactly. It burned up. It's, it's of no value. But now, how, again, how do we please a God who's already pleased? It says we make it our goal to please Him. Remember Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without what? Faith. It's impossible to please God. Folks, when you see this passage here saying, make it your goal to please Him, you don't say, I want to be a good Christian to please Him. No. How you please God is by faith. That God will do what He said He would do. That He will keep His promises. That He will live His life through us if we yield to Him. That apart from Him, we can do nothing. And when we live by faith and act in obedience to what He said in His Word, believing that He would be the one who does it through us, that's what is pleasing to God. The older son thought he was pleasing to God because he never disobeyed an order, or to his father because he never disobeyed an order. The father said, you don't get it. I'm always with you. Everything I have is yours. You could have gotten the fattened calf yourself if you just asked. But you were thinking you had to earn it. And I'm just going to say to you, having been raised with that kind of teaching, having sung the song, I am satisfied with Jesus, but the question comes to me when I think of Calvary, is my master satisfied with me? That's sad. I'm his, and he loves me. Are there things he wants to do? Yes. Are there things he wants to do to change and shape me? Yes. As a loving father, he's going to discipline me. But is he satisfied with me? Oh, yes. But I make it my goal to please him. But how do I please him? By faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Okay, where, where are you at? What verse? Verse 9 says, Make it our goal to please Him whether we're at home in the body or away from it. How does yours read? Whether we labor, mm-hmm. whether present or absent, we may be accepted to Him. Yeah, and again, all work... It's, it's, exactly. Well, the thing is, it's, it's that work added to it. Well, let me give you an example of that. What's the other well, I, honestly, my translation doesn't have the word labor. It just says we make it our goal to please Him. So it doesn't even have a translation of that word labor. Aim. Goal instead of labor. Her says aim. Any other translation, Jeb? What do you have? In verse 9, his translation says we make it our labor. King James says make it our labor. I think goal is the better translation of it. Our, our aim, I guess, is a good one as well. So that's 
It sure does. It changes the whole... Because again, we hear labor and we think work. Right. Yeah. I think aim would be even a better, better one. We make it our aim to please Him. But again, how do you please Him? You do it by faith. You do it by faith. Well, in the time we have, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. And, uh, and let's look at that last section. Verses 25 through 29. It says, See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from Him who warns us from heaven? At that time His voice shook the earth. Remember, that's when the Old Covenant was given there at Mount Sinai. But now He has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now again, if you were to read this all by itself, it puts a little fear in there, doesn't it? But that's why I want you to understand why we needed to look at this all together in context. The Hebrew writer has been saying what? Hey, you've just gotten a spanking from your Heavenly Father because you're thinking about going back. Uh, but a loving father disciplines his children. And if you're not being disciplined, you're not his kid. Alright? Um, it's tough. Wrap your knees up. Um, make level paths. And keep running the race. The time is short. And then he goes on and says, here's some specifics of how to avoid tripping up. Live at peace with everyone. Avoid sexual immorality. Uh, what was the other one we looked at? Uh, he goes on and it says uh, um, also, um, be holy as we looked at. And then he goes on and says, look at the comparison of the two. The Old Covenant and the Ten Commandments and the way things were when God was so fearful. Yet here he's receiving and accepting and welcoming. And then he gives one last warning again here. And he says, don't refuse him who speaks. He's giving you an offer here. And he's writing to a group of people that some are saved and if they're saved, they're fine. But the others aren't. He doesn't know who's there. So he writes to that whole group and he says, don't refuse him who speaks. And I wrote in my notes that even though this section has a warning that might not apply to a group of people gathered on a Tuesday night to study the Bible, there is something here though for us. Because I'm pretty sure for most of the people that are sitting here on a Tuesday night who've come from all over to come study the Bible, you're not thinking about leaving the faith and rejecting Christ. You're here because of the opposite. You want to know Him more. So what's here for us? What's here for us? Well, here's what I wrote. In the giving of the Ten Commandments, God's voice shook the earth. But God has promised to shake everything again in the end when He sets up His kingdom. And I want you to go back to where this was written in the Old Testament that the Hebrew writer is quoting from. Go to Haggai chapter 2. Now that's going to be a little tricky one to find. Haggai is near the end of the Old Testament. Right, very good. I heard someone say it right before Zechariah. If you try to flip through and do the old spin the pages, you won't find it that way, folks, because you probably only got one or two pages at all. But listen to Haggai chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations 
and the desired of nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. What's this a picture of again? The end of the tribulation period, when you remember, and there's going to be those, all those earthquakes that are precursors to it. Then there's going to be the earthquakes that are happening during the tribulation period. And then at the end, there's going to be this massive earthquake that totally changes the shape of the earth. Jesus Himself will come, and the Millennial Kingdom will be set up. And we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And what you don't realize is, at the very end of Hebrews chapter 12... What the Hebrew writer is doing is what he was doing in verse 12 and 13. Remember 12 and 13 when he says, Strengthen your weak arms and your feeble knees. And he was quoting from Isaiah 35 when he says, It's tough now, but there's a time coming when all this bad stuff will no longer be bad. And Jesus will be here and it's going to be wonderful. He ends with that same thing. And so I'll paraphrase what the Hebrew writer says. Stay on the winning team. Stay on the winning team. I like to watch sports. And I'm a real big Florida State fan. And sometimes I don't get to see the games on the football games on TV, but the football season's starting up again. And it reminds me of a few times in my life when I knew I hadn't seen the game, but I knew that they had won. And it sure made watching the game easier because there were times it didn't look like they were going to win. You know what I'm saying? But if you already knew by the end of the game your team was going to win, you could watch that game and you'd be okay. And you think to yourself, boy, I'm so glad I know they're going to win because it doesn't look like they're going to win right now. But thank God I know the end. God has given us in this book how it's all going to play out. Are you willing to keep living by faith? Is He going to come get us? This month? I hope. I don't know. A lot of things sure point toward the possibility, but I don't know. We're making plans for October. I've actually booked plane flights to go preach in October and in November and December. But I know this much. What he's told us is this. Keep running. If you're sore, if you're tired, wrap yourself up, if you will. Be strengthened by the Word. Avoid the stuff that's going to trip you up because it's going to get more. And keep your eyes on Jesus. There's a time coming and very soon when we won't have to run the race anymore. And if you see your brother or sister getting tired, go lock arms with them and say, keep coming, you're going to be alright. God's going to get us there. Because I might need you to do it for me one of these days. Let me pray for us. Father, Boy, we have covered a lot. And I thank you for the way in which your spirit is able to help us to kind of tie things together and and to see this book that we've read maybe or even understood a little bit, but to see how this all ties together. Father, we thank you for the fact that as we read this, we're not trying to figure out how much of uh, the Hebrew writer's humanity was involved because you inspired every word. Your book says that. And we thank you for the fact that as we read this then, we can just look for what you're saying. Lord, thank you for the fact that we can study a book like this, the book of Hebrews, and not even know who the actual human author was. And not it really doesn't matter, because we know that you're the one who wrote it. And Lord, you have a message, not only for those who heard it at that time, but your word is alive and living, and it speaks to us today. And so Lord, each of us knows how you've spoken to us tonight, and how we can apply these truths. And we just pray now that by your grace, as we yield to you in obedience, that we would let you 
apply these truths in our lives and watch you manifest yourself in holiness in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.